Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Once I reviewed each of his works in the chronological order of publication, but Ka is a wheel, it all goes round again. And here I am once more on a new phase of the journey, one to examine each of the endings of the works of Stephen King to determine whether or not King deserves his reputation for having an inability to successfully land his endings. The focus of the podcast will be to examine the climax, the falling action, the resolution of each of the endings to his novels, and break it down by character themes, conflict, and plot to determine whether or not it meets the criteria of being an objectively good ending. I will also weigh in on whether or not I happen to like the ending. And today I'm here to discuss the ending of Dreamcatcher. So, uh, before I begin, I just want to welcome everyone to the Stephen King cast. If this is your first time, welcome. Um, You have a lot of episodes to sort through. Right now, like I said, I'm examining the endings to the works of Stephen King, but originally I wanted to make my way through the entirety of the works of Stephen King and look at each of the novels, the short stories, the novellas, um, and see how they all fit together, the patterns that emerged from them to break down the, the themes, and then just to see how each of the novels fit within um, uh, ideas that he explored across um, different, different works with different um, phases throughout his life how it all connected to the Dark Tower series. So if you want a deeper dive, um, those episodes are there waiting for your your enjoyment. And if at any point um, anyone wants to write a review, just head on over to Stephen King Cast on iTunes and leave a review. That would help out greatly. And at all times, you can always email me at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And I'm going to go through some of the listener um, emails that I've received over the last couple weeks. Up first, we have Lisa, who writes, Hello, I am a new listener. A new listener to any podcast. Yours is my first. When someone told me to just type in a subject that I would want to search on my podcast app, the first two words I typed were Stephen King. This led me to you, and I'm so grateful. Besides being a constant reader, and I actually have a Dear Constant Reader tattooed on my forearm. That's awesome. I'm a tower junkie. I would not say I'm an expert, but a connoisseur of King's story arc and Easter eggs. In each of my Stephen King books, there are highlights, words in in the margins, lines and arrows to where they lead or imply, and maps that I've drawn. I write all of the tropes and Stephen Kingisms on the pages as they appear. Some look like college textbooks of an insane grad student, and I do all of this for fun. I recently enjoyed all of your Tower episodes and related episodes, now moving through my favorites list. I love hearing your options, opinions, I think and those of other listeners that you share. It's like my own book club, a book club that I've waited years and decades to join. My first Stephen King book was Pet Cemetery. Not only was it my first King novel, but my first adult book. I was mesmerized by the story, the language, by the scenes I could see taking place in my mind as I read each paragraph. I kept the book hidden from my parents because I thought something this great was probably forbidden to a seventh grade girl. I read it on the school bus to and from school and to lunch. I parted ways with many of my friends because I would rather sit a little off to myself reading than talk about middle school drama. I was addicted and my drug was the written word. It's an addiction I've never overcome. My second Stephen King book was The Talisman and it rocked my world. As soon as I finished reading the last sentence, I turned back to page one and started all over again with the same level of excitement. I then devoured all of King's stories and caught up with his publications in the late 90s. Now I wait wait for each time a new novel or collection is released. I'm eagerly awaiting Billy Summers in a few weeks. Well, that's my origin story and what led me to find you and your podcast. I enjoy the... 
I enjoy the origin stories of your other listeners. It's like watching someone open a great gift. I'm truly happy and excited for them. Keep sharing, Lisa. Lisa, thank you so much for writing in. Um, I hope that you are enjoying the podcast. And then Tom writes, Hi, I usually don't think of getting in touch about this sort of thing, but I just listened to the episode about your ending of Wizard and Glass and thought that I would drop you a line to say how much I enjoyed the podcast. I've been catching up over the last six months or so, and I'm finally a live listener, which feels great. It is my favorite book of his, probably my favorite book of all time, and I could talk about it all day, but I've really enjoyed your takes on the ones that I really didn't enjoy when I read them, The Tommyknockers Under the Dome and Dreamcatcher, which I will get into in a little bit. I'm not saying they changed my mind, but they certainly made me want to reread them again with a different perspective in mind. I really appreciate the way that you take King on as a writer and the focus you've had on his books as books. I'm sure you don't want to get into comparisons with other podcasts, but I suspect a lot of the people have their starting point as the films and want to approach King purely as a storyteller or franchise builder. I really like the way that your reviews take on the language and structure of his work. Analyzing whether the endings are good in a scientific way, as much as that's ever possible, was a fantastic idea. A question that I've always wanted to ask, I'm assuming American, ask an American uh, Stephen King fan, how real do you find the dialogue from his characters? He's got so many of these slightly cheesy folksy kingisms that are always in there. Oh yeah, or you bet your fur, or Jesus crow. Well, wish in one hand, shit in the other. See which fills up first. As a foreigner and not a boomer, these sorts of turns of phrase are all alien to me, so it's never been a problem. Do you read King dialogue and think, hey, this is how American people talk? Or do you think, here we are, some more Stephen King dialogue? I was thinking this particularly when I was rereading Crouch N the other day, one of the few, maybe the only, can't think of others right now, of his stories set in the real world but outside the U.S. Love the story, but the Brit characters and the setting never come across as realistic to me. King's such an American writer and a chronicler of the baby boomers that I think that Crouch End is actually an interesting one to take on as him dipping a toe into a foreign setting. Oh wait, as I type this, I just remember the Sherlock Holmes short story he did too. I guess and that's another non-US one as well. He's doing a parody of a style there, so it's easier to, be, to forgive. But while he's going for the Lovecraft vibe in Crouch End, it definitely feels like he's going for a contemporary approach. Anyway, forgive the long email. It's a pleasure to be able to unload a few thoughts on someone who's created so much entertainment and obviously got so much insight on the topic. Keep up the great work. It's been a pleasure listening. All the best, Tom from Oxford. Tom, so that is uh, a great question. Um, and when King does his folksy thing, it does not feel realistic to me. There are moments, for sure, the the Aya of Mainers is true to what I have experienced personally with um, with family members in Maine. Um, when, I mean, th there, there are people that I know that I'm like, oh my God, you know, Stephen King is right on the money. It feels, it feels very, very, very true. But some of his, the Stephen King catchphrases are outlandish but they recreate what they do is they are stylistic recreatement recreations of the um, the patterns and the familiarities and the idiosyncratic idiosyncrasies that we have with one another. Um, so it doesn't feel true, but it feels authentic if that makes sense. Um, so it, it it never feels right, and that's why when Stephen King tends to write. Um, the scripts for his movies, hearing that Stephen King, those Stephen Kingisms, 
um, and those those little catchphrases come out in the dialogue in movies it can be at times cringeworthy the more tricky thing that screenwriters have to do is to take that sentiment and to take that intent and then to translate it um, into a, a script if that makes sense what is the goal here the goal is to create this familiarity this um this this dialect between people that that speaks to what's it supposed to speak to to small town life how do we recreate that on the 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 big screen or the small screen it works for stephen king in the books and in the novellas and in the novels and the short stories it works it works there because he is working within his medium and he's able to create this this sense of again familiarity small town life um, where they have their own spoken language. Um, so the answer is no, it does not feel true to life because people don't really speak that way, but you don't want everyday dialogue because that would be really boring. And what he does is he creates this stylistic version of of small town life. So I hope that that, that, uh, that answers that question. And up next, we have Bryant, uh, who is responding to something that I, I posed a couple weeks ago about Lisey's story, how I have not watched it. And for those of you who have watched it, to please give me your thoughts on Lisey's story, the series on Apple+. Plus. So spoiler alert for those of you who have not watched it yet. Um, I'm going to read Bryant's email. And if you have anything to say about this email or your own thoughts about Lisey's story, please send it in. So Bryant writes, answering the call. I thought Lisey's story was okay. The novel, which I need to reread with the context of the miniseries in mind, is handedly one of my least favorite kings I've ever, ever written. So the miniseries was not a slam dunk for me to begin with. I ended up liking it, though, and I think it's probably made the novel go up in my esteem, mildly. Even so, I've lost a lot of interest by the end. Even though there's nothing in them that I can point to as being particularly bad, the final two episodes were just so-so for me. While I loved most of what came before that, I ended up feeling a bit indifferent toward the whole thing. It's a damn sight better than The Stand, though, so it's got that going for it. Great cast, lovely visuals, a memorable score, and some good screenwriting decisions from King, who wisely got rid of most of the private life of a marriage vocabulary wackiness. It just never quite managed to ascend into that next level for me. I'd call it a B or a B plus. That's an improvement on the grade I'd give the novel, though, so it's a win in that sense, if no other. Bryant. Bryant, thank you um, for that email. That's exactly the kind of review that I needed in order for me to want to actually dive into that uh, adaptation. Okay, guys, uh, so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to... Um, read the Wikipedia summary of Dreamcatcher and then talk about the ending of Dreamcatcher. But if you have any thoughts on Dreamcatcher or Lisey's story or anything that we have talked about today, just write into at yahoo.com. The story is set in motion by a family hiking trip. Nope, that is not <laughs> Dreamcatcher. That is, um, that is the girl who loved Tom Corden. Give me one second, everybody. Okay, let's try that again. Set near the fictional town of Derry, Maine, Dreamcatcher is the story of four lifelong friends, Gary Jonesy Jones, Pete Moore, Joe Beaver Clarendon, and Henry Devlin. As young teenagers, bleh, as young teenagers the four saved Douglas Duddits Cavell, an older boy with Down syndrome from a group of sadistic bullies. From their new friendship with Duddits, Jonesy, Beaver, Henry, and Pete began to share the boys' unusual powers, including telepathy, shared dreaming, and seeing the line. 
psychic trace left by the movement, movement of human beings. Jonesy, Beaver, and Henry and Pete reunite for their annual hunting trip at the Hole in the Wall, an isolated lodge in the Jefferson Tract. There, they become caught between an alien invasion and an insane U.S. Army Colonel, Abraham Kurtz. Um, Jonesy and Beaver, who remain at the cabin while Henry and Pete go out for supplies, encounter Richard McCarthy, a disoriented and delirious stranger wandering near the lodge during a blizzard talking about lights in the sky. The victim of an alien abduction, McCarthy grows sicker and dies while sitting on the toilet. An extraterrestrial parasite eats its way out of his body and attacks the two men, killing Beaver. Jonesy inhales the spores of the strange reddish fungus that the stranger and his parasite have spread around the cabin, and an alien entity, Mr. Gray, takes over his mind. On the return trip from the supply run, Henry and Pete encounter a woman from the same hunting party as the strange man at the cabin. She is also delirious and infected with a parasite. After crashing their car, Henry leaves Pete with the woman and attempts to regain the cabin by foot. From there, the telepathy senses let him know that Pete is in trouble. Beaver is dead, and Jonesy is no longer Jonesy. Mr. Gray, manipulating Jonesy's body, is attempting to leave the area. The aliens have attempted to infect Earth multiple times, beginning with the Roswell crash in the 40s, but environmental factors have always stopped them, and the U.S. government has covered up the failed invasion attempts every time. With the infection of Jonesy, who can contain the alien within his mind and also spread the infection, Mr. Gray has become the perfect typhoid Mary, and he knows it. Mr. Gray hijacks a truck, transporting a spored-filled alien corpse, while Jonesy, trapped inside a mental stronghold, is powerless to stop him. It's now up to Henry, by now a quarantined prisoner of the army, to convince the military to go after Jonesy and Mr. Gray before it's too late. Jonesy himself, now a prisoner in his own mind, tries to help. Both of them are convinced that their old friend Duddits might be the key to saving the world. Using telepathic powers gained from the alien fungus... Henry alerts the Army officer Owen Underhill of a plan by Kurtz to kill the most of the Army personnel to maintain secrecy. The two stage an escape by telepathically inciting a riot among the other prisoners, destroying the base in the process. As they flee, the pair is closely pursued by a vengeful Kurtz along with his subordinates Freddy and Perlmutter. Perlmutter is infected with a telepathic parasite and being used to track down Owen and Mr. Gray despite the personal reluctance and pain. Owen and Henry follow Jones and Mr. Gray to Derry, and along the way, they share their childhood memories, including a time when Duddits and his friends tracked down a missing girl. Henry and Owen unite with Duddits, who is very sick with leukemia. After a tear-filled goodbye with Duddits' mom, the trio used Duddits' powers to follow Jonesy Mr. Gray southward to Quabbin Reservoir. Mr. Gray intends to infect the local water supply with a dog. He is infected with the spores, giving it the parasite. Jonesy is able to slow down Mr. Gray's process and progress considerably by getting the presence of a strongly, to strongly crave bacon which it eats raw after obtaining it from a convenience store. The uncooked meat greatly sickens Jonesy's body, giving the trio just enough time to catch up and confront Mr. Gray at the reservoir. Using the last of his powers, Duddits helps Henry and Jonesy mentally overcome Mr. Gray, as well as help Owen shoot the parasite emerging from the dog. Duddits dies from the effort, but has prevented Mr. Gray's plans. Kurtz and his men arrive, leaving the infected soldier in their vehicle. They ambush and fatally shoot Owen, while Kurtz is killed by Freddy, who fears that Kurtz will shoot him next. Freddy flees, returning to their vehicles, but is killed by the parasite that was growing inside the now-deceased Pearl Mutter's body. Exhausted and half-insane, half insane, Henry sets the car on fire by shooting its gas tank, destroying the last of the alien presence on Earth. He reunites with Josie, who passes out from exhaustion. Okay. All right, here is the criteria for a good ending. Does it provide an appropriate conclusion to its characters that's consistent with the characters' actions, conflicts, or themes of the books? Uh, no. No. I like the characters. 
but this book is 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 a mess um you know and i should note that this novel was written um in the wake of stephen king getting hit by the van and so um you know he's not at his best physically and he has to endure a lot of um pain at this time and so you just have to kind of contextualize the messiness of this story with the the overwhelming trauma that he suffered so these characters they feel like better characters we already know um and for me with the exception of beaver the character deaths don't land with as much punch as king is normally able to deliver does it successfully wrap up the plot specifically do the events build upon one another is there a plot this book has a plot look the the structure of this novel is is messy the the life side the life cycle to the aliens don't make a lick of sense um if you move past that, you know, the ticking clock possessed Jonesy about to poison the Quabbin Reservoir. It's effective. Um, so he does include some plot structure that assists the book, but it can't save the book from itself. Um, there's just too many variables that you have to accept. The, 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 the psychic powers is is ill-defined and just has this loose magic quality where kind of anything can happen the like i said the the life cycle of the aliens themselves is all over the place you know it it, it borrows from the xenomorph life cycle in alien in some regards but at least that is very very clear um you know there is the there is the pod the face hucker the face hucker you know um, infects, uh, that's not the word, in injects, implants um, the, the alien egg um, or the, the little xenomorph inside a human host. It's a parasite. It bursts out. Um, it, you know, gives birth to a queen and the queen then creates more pods and that's the life cycle that makes sense right um this there's there's a fungus the fungus grows um there is it, it infects you with the the shit weasels shit weasels can grow into the grays there's the grays I, it, it's very confusing um so all in all the the plot is a, a disaster do, does the conclusion serve the themes, symbolisms, or motifs? And I would say that this story is a thematic mess. There's a cancer motif that never truly gels into anything. There's a messy theme about friendships and pain and tragedy, shared tragedy, shared responsibility, shared magic, but it never coalesces into anything that makes any sort of sense thematically. Um, and in the end, you just have, you know, just whatever whatever happens at the end um what's the most famous scene in the novel and does it appear in the conclusion of the story this does not necessarily work against um a story if the most famous scene is not in the end but it certainly helps i would say it's the shit weasel scene with beaver it's not in the conclusion of the story are there other factors that we need to consider yes uh like i said this unfortunately was written in the wake of king nearly um leaving this earth grateful that he made his recovery. Um, but this novel was um, written at a terrible, terrible time. Do I like the ending? No, no, good lord, no. Is it a good ending? Good God, no, 
no, it's not a good book and it's not a good ending. Um, so uh, this is the tally that we have. We have, um, I happen to like 28 out of 31 endings. And then with this, we're now at 27 out of 31 endings are good. So that is that everyone. Um, if you have any thoughts on Dreamcatcher, please write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Next week, I will review the conclusion to Black House, the sequel to The Talisman that he co-authored with Peter Straub. So if you have any thoughts on that, please write into stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King Cast.